Based in London, Tony Chambers has worked as an art director at the Sunday Times Magazine and British GQ, as well as the creative director and later editor-in-chief at Wallpaper, where he turned the print magazine into a multi-platform brand. He now runs his own design consultancy, TC and Friends. I sat down for a conversation with Tony during Singapore Design Week to unpack his career and learn what makes the mind of this media marvel tick. I'm Jeremy Smart, Creative Director of Design Anthology, and this is The Design Dialogues. Thank you so much for joining me, Tony. Could you give me a bit of an idea of how your career began? I was a junior, junior, junior designer at the Sunday Times magazine. So I was very fortunate. Um, I, in fact, had an internship there while I was in my second year and third year at Central. St. Martin's where I studied graphic design and typography. And the Sunday Times needed um, a helper, a young designer to help on a a charity magazine they were doing, a sponsorship for the Royal Society. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, a conservation magazine for children. Okay. Um, it was called Watch, the magazine. Um, and they were, by way of sponsorship of this very um, worthy and noble cause, ahead of its time, by the way, when you think about it, Um, conservation Mm. and um, wildlife. Uh, This was 1985, giving my age away. Um, They were sponsored by way of designing it and producing it. It was a very nice magazine. So the art editor of the Sunday Times magazine, brilliant man called Pedro Silman, um, had started it, designed it, but needed then help. So he came to Central School of Art, which conveniently was just up the road. Um, So again, you know, geography does help, being close to things. And interviewed a few second year graphic students and I got the job um, to go in and help on that. So it was an incredible um, foot in the door. So again, fortune um, plays a big role in my career. Um, Just that locality being close to the Sunday Times magazine, having this chance meeting. um, And then ended up being offered a job on graduation, okay. so a year later on graduation, for three months. So three months work. Um, after three months, they said, I'll carry on for another three months, carry on for another three months, and that turned into 10 years at the Sunday Times magazine, where basically I learned everything about magazine design, um, and actually visual storytelling. Um, storytelling has become a bit of a cliche in terms of in marketing speak and design speak but actually I first heard the phrase then in about 1985 because in a sense it is true that's what it is you take um, on the magazine you know the, one of the first supplement magazines color magazines um, was very much visually led um, the words of course incredibly important but if the pictures didn't tell the story immediately if it didn't grab the reader um, their readers attention immediately would fail so the art director there who'd been the art director since the very beginning 1962 Michael Rand was a genius at this skill and way of putting words and pictures together that made a great impact 
Um, so yeah, at that stage I was making the tea, cleaning up the layouts because it was still physical in those days. It was pre-computer. Um, and it was the greatest learning curve. So you just sat there, you listened, you did anything to help. Um, if you were lucky, you did get to help on the odd layout. But after 10 years, a very slow but beautiful and lovely trajectory of just learning from the best and ended up being the art editor, so uh, uh, running the art department in a sense. Um, and then came GQ because after 10 years, even though I loved it and felt I could stay there forever and learn more, something inside me was saying if I don't make a change I might get a bit complacent and I sort of followed my career. Uh, generally, so I tend to stay around places a long time. But then there comes a point where you think I can't. If I stay any longer, I might get too comfortable. Um, and I think ten years, you kind of then know, you know what you're doing. You've learned as much as you can, and there's the danger of repeating yourself. So then the GQ job came up. Uh, I was offered it to be the art director of GQ, and I thought there was a chance there to do to take some of my journalistic knowledge, because of course the Sunday Times magazine very much about journalism first and editorial first no room for real graphic design gymnastics you're there to tell the story efficiently well beautifully and um, in an attractive way to capture the reader but you were serving the content and I think that was a brilliant lesson to um, kind of dampen the potential ego you might have as a graduate designer wanting to make your mark um, but to understand that you're a servant to the content uh, to these incredible writers and incredible photographers or illustrators that you know you could make or break their work a good layout could elevate an average story a bad layout could destroy a great story. So I thought I could bring a bit of that to GQ, into the men's lifestyle, fashion, and, and that was a great journey to, to, to add something else which was maybe a bit more, well, glossy, and a monthly, and a product that had to live on, primarily, or a lot of it, on the strength of the cover, which I didn't have to do with the Sunday Times magazine because that was, came with the newspaper. Um, of course, the standards had to be there. You had to make as good a product as you could, but you didn't, you didn't have that, um, which I learned very quickly, that nervousness of seeing your title on the newsstand. And if it was a bad cover, you might not sell as many if it was a good cover. So a terrifying experience, yeah. a, good, a good learning curve to know that, yeah, this is a bit more commercially driven. It's funny, I guess um, the idea of editorial design at all is somewhat something of a lost art now. Um, it seems to be, uh, I guess when we're talking about um, craftsmanship in some ways, it's like something that's dying out because storytelling is done in such a commoditized way now. It's not art directed for the story, it's art directed for the brand and the site or the, the platform it's on. Um, yes. And just the nature of art direction as a job has changed I'd imagine. I mean, I certainly in the time I've been doing it, but for you, it must be a just unrecognisable role now. It has. It, it changed a lot in, the, in those at the Sunday Times magazine. Yeah, the the the, the power that the art department wielded. Um, that's the right word, or or had in terms of uh, the strength they had in very politely and in a very diplomatic way, but running. Um, the magazine really and the decisions that Michael ran the art director or the senior designers um, they would be listened to so text could be cut to accommodate better pictures not in a gratuitous way because as I said they were ter 
very, very well um, educated and sensible and grown up in that the content gave us. But often, yeah, making a picture bigger and cutting some words often is better. Um, and, these, and the writers and the sub-editors, they appreciated that and knew that by and large, Michael and the team would be right. So it was great in terms of as a designer to see, wow, the respect that design was given. And again, this is going back a number of years. Design is given a lot more respect now because people, more people realize how powerful it is and how important it is to communicate, to sell, and all those other things. But then it was way ahead of its time. But in magazines, that has been lost a little. I, I, I do admit there are still some exceptions where, where, where there is that very healthy um, relationship between editor and art director or creative director. Um, but there it was so clear. And as a young designer, wow, it gave me such confidence that, yeah, we're treated with, with respect. And, um, yeah, the difference between the print magazine and digital, we all know it is so different. Um, so many more advantages of digital in terms of its immediate communication and the amount of content you can produce. Um, but perhaps the discipline of having limited number of pages made you far more um, focused and to edit down to maybe the best, or, or the best. Um, Whereas sometimes I think with digital media and the internet, because it's as long as it, you want it to be, you become a little bit lazier and you put 20 pictures in when perhaps three would be better. Um, so pros and cons with both, but it's um, like in all careers, in, in all businesses and all um, professions, these things are constantly moving and you have to move with it. Mm. You have to. And I guess you saw both sides of that because you went to Wallpaper um, and you were creative director there for... I was creative director for five years and then editor-in-chief for 10, 11 years. So you really would have seen, I guess, this whole... I mean, I imagine you're controlling a much larger creative team and a creative budget because it's something that's quite... It is quite visually led. Yes. Um, but you've moved into an, an editorial role, which must have been quite exciting to be able to, to have this understanding of how, how to tell a visual story, but to also be able to control or at least to capture all of the other parts of that story um, and you know, sort of understand it from start to finish in a way that a lot of editors certainly couldn't because they haven't done your job and probably a lot of uh, creative directors couldn't do because they haven't sat on the editorial side. That must have been quite an interesting experience and unusual. Oh, it was, it was an extraordinary experience and best period of, of my career, really, because wallpaper absolutely sums up and is quintessentially the visually-led magazine. Again, always great words, witty, provocative, mm -hmm. interesting, but so visually led I mean a visual feast and the fascinating thing about wallpaper was from my previous two experiences in editorial was that everybody on wallpaper was creatively literate they were all visually led people the other two Sunday Times and GQ you'd have the art department of course the designers and visually literate the fashion department visually literate visually obsessed but the rest were very good, but non-visual editors. Um, so there'd maybe be a, a little bit more of a conflict between this picture needs to be bigger or this needs to be this way. And the, the words guys, what one might call them, would you know resist a little bit. All friendly, but you know, a bit of a tug of war. Wallpaper, everybody was a creative because every department was run by, well, by and large, they were all designers who had maybe then moved into um, journalism. So the interiors editor had trained as a theatre designer, 
fashion editors, of course, come from a creative background anyway, often uh, studying fashion design, architecture editor, trained architect, etc. So you're suddenly faced with this amazing and exhilarating um, room where everybody was a creative. However, that does come with... Uh, the flip side, that creative people are often a little more fiery, a bit more uh, passionate and, you know, you know, kind of uh, don't let go. They really, so there was, yeah, 30 people who were as bit crazy as me. So <laughs> you had a, another kind of problem that came with that, but it was a beautiful problem to have where everybody would be so passionate about how their story looked. Whereas before sports editor of the newspaper or the the um, architectural editor of the newspaper of GQ mm, not that fussed about the layout in the end um, but everybody was passionate so wow you suddenly felt you're having to manage a lot of very passionate good egos the pressures of that yeah it, it, it came with but it, it just elevated the whole thing oh my right. God, I've never worked with so many um I say passionate perfectionists um, vocational really and also the great thing was that it also attracted that type of person so any interns we had were always of the very highest caliber and quality because it was a vocational thing so beautiful to your question of the transition from creative director to editor yes it was a huge surprise I have to thank my predecessor, who Jeremy, who had turned the magazine back into a commercial success after the founder left, Tyler Brule. Obviously, there was a dip because there's a with advertising and um, in readership, you know, you sense, oh, the founder's gone. It's not going to be as good. So there was a year or so where it really did dip. Jeremy came a year or so after that and he employed me as creative director. So I thank him for that as well. Um, but he got it back onto a steady uh made it a steady ship again and turned the corner and made it profitable again so we as a team were seen as successful so when he left kind of the management thought well how about Tony because he's been part of this uh, created this turnaround and also I think it helped my journalistic background at the Sunday Times I as I said I was not just a designer who was interested in pretty pictures and nice colors or pretty tight faces I understood that the 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 blend and the marriage of word and image and the storytelling and the content was the most important. And also, I think I was grown up. I was a grown up. So they saw that, A, don't uh, mess with a ship that's going in the right way. Let's give it to the creative guy. Fingers crossed. I mean, one had to go through a very thorough interviewing process. But it was a risk because it's unusual for the art guy, the creative director, to be given the, the, uh, the top job as it were. But my experience made me feel confident. I was, I was nervous because it's a, it's a hell of a responsibility. You step up a lot. You are responsible for everything. And although it's not in the job description, you are responsible for the finances. Right. Yeah. yeah. In the job description, it's, you know, literally it's, you are, you create the editorial, the advertising team, sell it. But if the advertising goes down, it's your fault. Yeah. So I had good advice from Jeremy that he said, make sure that is solid make sure the finances are solid make sure all those advertisers are happy and that involves a lot of the social side and the brand ambassadorial side as it should be because if somebody's advertising with you if they're investing in you if they are giving their good money because they think you are a good 
magazine and reach a good audience, it is right and proper and respectful to then spend proper time in looking at their product. And the wallpaper was so lucky that every advertiser was a dream brand anyway. So it was a super simple. That relationship between editorial and advertising was so simple because every advertiser would be was definitely the appropriate editorial. In fact, we turned away ads if they we didn't feel they were right. We had a great, um, fabulous position to be in. That um, yeah, if we thought a brand wasn't really up to standard for our readership, no matter how much they were offering, we had the editorial had the right to say no, and the publishing team respected that because they knew ultimately long term that is right. Because if you start allowing in some inferior brands your loyal quality ones will get upset and they because they you know, it's all about adjacency and the the family you're in so yeah a huge change in responsibility but again at the right time because i just felt well this is a new challenge and an interesting thing but yeah wonderful 10 11 years as editor-in-chief where we were on a rise we're on a really good uh, trajectory with an amazing team and we were allowed by an amazing publishing company time inc at the time to break rules, push boundaries, because they saw it's a progressive product, a very progressive readership. That's what that wants. And then very progressive advertisers. So a dream, a dream combination. And so I guess at that point, you're commanding a brand. You're not just commanding a publication. And so it seems you were able to expand into other areas. You were able to turn a magazine into something much more that we now know as, you know, the modern media brand isn't a single platform. And so I guess what you were doing at Wallpaper was sort of at the the precipice of that. It was at the beginning of this change in how media works. Um, I guess, did you you feel that change happening? Was it something that you felt, uh, you know, the tectonic plates of the industry were moving and you were sort of responding to that? Or did you kind of just see opportunities because you'd seen the creative side, you'd seen the financial side, you'd seen the editorial side, you could kind of have this full picture and you could see its potential perhaps. Um, you, You hit the nail on the head, yes. That transition into it being a brand and a media brand as opposed to just a magazine was was a crucial um, period. So it's 2007. There must have been something in the water because actually it was a key part of my presentation when when I was interviewed. I think deep down they they'd made the decision that they were going to give me the job, um, but you still had to have a very rigorous interview process in case you know you mess up um, or just don't seem to be the person that they perceived you were to be. But in my presentation, I remember that that was the key element, that what we were doing as a magazine was just about bang on in terms of its appropriateness to the market and, and, and everything that would needs to be done. But there was a sea change happening. You could tell this was, I think digital was really biting at that point. Um, and many other things were were beginning to nibble at the print what would then call traditionally print media. Newspapers were being hit properly. Wallpaper was cruising, it was fine, but again, that never be complacent thing. You never know what's around the corner. So definitely the digital strategy was was high on the agenda. And that had started anyway, while I was creative director through a very um, uh, smart publisher we had. Um, but beyond that, we knew that we had something here that was so special and a readership, a family of readerships that was so special that we could expand this And actually, rather than just reporting on the creative industry, we could start to be a part of it and use our connections in the design world, great friends in the design world, great friends in the manufacturing world, 
we can kind of dip our toe into the making process, into the designing process. We could have a store. We could um, do more than just the magazine. We could do uh, travel guides, which we had a, started a relationship with Fired and Press to do the wallpaper city guides, a small interior design um, office that, again, our interior our interiors department at that point, Ben, Amy, Layla, many of them, they're, they're all brilliant designers. As what you just said earlier, um, as we were off camera about, it's such a shame that this great exhibition you've done is there for three days. I felt the same about the set designs these people would do. It would just be for a shoot, then it would be broken down. So that is worthy of a hotel, that is as worthy for a restaurant. And everybody would pore over those interior shoots in Wallpaper Magazine. We would be inspiration. You'd see that inspiration then appear in a hotel or a restaurant all over the world, the wallpaper kind of look. So it was a no-brainer in a sense, just make that photo shoot more permanent, um, etc. So it was very much a case of, and again, all this passionate staff, this passionate team, how rewarding is that? Rather than it just ending on the page of a magazine, let's give it more life. So the Wallpaper Handmade project was the start of that, um, which was a 10-year um, exhibition in Salone and edition of the magazine, where we worked with creatives and manufacturers to create unique new things and use the research and development budgets of these, these brands, who are our friends anyway. And yeah, they had a different sack of money that they could spend on something worthwhile and ultimately fruitful for them find new designers, make some unusual products that they're not normally doing. Um, and then actually that even more cemented our relationship with these brands, whether it be Casina or MS or BMW. Once you have a, a deeper relationship with them and go on a beautiful journey, like making a product and then being part of an exhibition, wow, it's incredible how much that relationship solidifies. And we used to say, yeah, there's certain, there were quite a lot in the end, and there still are brands that we just thought bulletproof relationships, you know, you, you, they were there for life. Um, so yeah, this, it, it, was, it was something in the water. We felt this was right, that to expand, to diversify in our, in our offering. And actually, you know what, again, with that kind of staff, yeah, they were maybe working twice as hard as they were before, but they were twice as happy. We were all twice as happy because as creative people, again, we're not in it for the money. <laughs> we're in it. We are creatives. We want to be paid, of course, and we should be. But the reward and the joy you see in all of us when we produced something like you have here, there's no feeling like it. You're talking about community, and I think that's what you know a good media brand uh, can become and I guess what print magazines were so good at was creating this world that you could escape to and it would be you'd be part of something that you just you know it was almost intangible there was a magic to it that you just couldn't find on any other medium um, I guess now we this sense of community still exists but it's quite tied now to a place I think that you need to be physically present to to have that otherwise it's just kind of more noise you're based in London and you have spent all of your career there well, at least based there. Um, you know, what's your relationship with the city like? I mean, that's, it's a very long relationship and I guess it must have informed many of your decisions and much of your work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm born up north uh, in Liverpool, a uh, city in the north of England, but moved to London to study um, at art school at Central St. Martins. Um, so, yeah, been there since 1985, 84, 85. 
and without a doubt it's I mean it's a, it's a city once you get comfortable there and get over the you know there are certain challenges because it's such a big city and such a vibrant and sometimes brutal um, city because it's such a fast pace but once you get up to that pace um, yeah the rewards are extraordinary I think culturally um, there's no city like it um, historically historical culture but also contemporary and modern in both in terms of design art music all the arts which of course is a, is a passion of mine it's a place you can't you can never get bored of it to um, quote Dr. Johnson um, but it informs you and it's um, it inspires you on a daily basis. I, I'm fortunate to live in a wonderful place, very central, the Barbican, um, which is an extraordinary piece of architecture and city planning, built just after the war and built with, designed, uh, just after the war, built a little bit later in the 70s, 60s and 70s, but designed and built with a utopian vision, post-war utopia. We have to build something extraordinary. And my God, they built something extraordinary. It is unlike anything else in the UK. Far more of a European and a very Caboosian um, theory, but living there, I've lived there now 26 years, I'm surprised every day by something new in that place, um, both in its design, but in its, in its build and its attention to detail. So yeah, if you can really plug into the benefits of a city and try to resist the negatives, because of course there are negatives and positives, cities are magical places, I think, and, and um, much maligned sometimes, I think, um, because they are tough at times. But if you can, if you can uh, yeah, really navigate the difficult bits, such as traffic and uh, um, other things like that, people underestimate or don't realise how actually easy it is to walk in London. And I think the pandemic, that pandemic helped because people walked a bit more and realised that actually that taxi I used to take that took half an hour only takes 25 minutes if I walk. Um, so I think people have got more in tune to that but it's a I think London cities generally are an endless source of inspiration but London is uh, I think probably still tops it's quite remarkable you can live in the Barbican as well it's it's an incredible thing to not just have in your city but to be able to call home and I can imagine once you're living somewhere like that to to ever imagine living elsewhere would be quite difficult very difficult yeah and that and the perception of that place has changed enormously since I we moved in um it was still a little bit, well, very much love it, hate it, more hated it um, because architectural styles, you know, change. And then 25, 26 years ago, people still felt it was oppressive and ugly. Now that style of architecture has become a little more, it's trendy, it's in fashion, but it's a cyclical thing and people appreciate it more. And then when they visit it, they realize the quality is so good and there's lots of open spaces there. Um, it's not as oppressive as it first appears. And it's quite well integrated into the city as well, although I guess it is it's a, a district unto itself. I guess that's what's quite special, is it does feel like you're in something bigger. Oh, absolutely. And having an art centre at its core, at its centre, is, again, wow, what an idea. And it works. I think it's the only one. I think it's the only one um, in the world. Um, an art centre of that scale. There are other art centres of that scale, but not totally integrated into a residential um, complex. We talk about a post-Brexit environment where um, I guess the language and the the, the 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 way we talk about immigration, the way we talk about the things that have made a city like London what it is um, it's clearly changed and 
I guess when you're there, do you still feel like it's the centre? Do you feel like that there's this energy coming in and out of the place? Or do you feel like over the last few years that there's been a dilution of that? I haven't, but it's primarily because there's been two or three other big distractions yeah. that have taken... Yeah, so we have an unusual un- couple of years. It has. And most myself and most of my friends we've all said this recently that actually we don't we haven't noticed the the possible negative impact of Brexit as much as it probably is there because there's been so much attention on COVID lockdowns the war now Russia that it's um, yeah we are yet to see the real negative side I think it's clear in terms of hospitality and um, other areas of um of recruitment that there just isn't the quality there as there was before because we lost a lot of very skilled people um, who felt they couldn't live there anymore um, in the building industry particularly. Um, The great Polish builders and craftsmen, I mean, we've lost a lot. And wow, they are another level of skill. And I don't think we've replaced that. Um, And in the service industry, it's it's a serious issue and I think it's going to be noticed far more in the coming year. And especially in design where I guess it touches so many other things. It's not just culture or creativity. It touches engineering and economics and business and trade and you've got all of these things coming together and when one part of that falls falls out, the rest of it can't stand up on its own. It's exactly. A- yeah, there is a, there's a domino effect that we are worried about um, that hasn't reared its ugly head yet, as I say, because of the distractions, but oh, it's, it's impacting. It's, uh, yeah, there's no question for my community, my area of, of, um, of my profession, Brexit uh, is a disaster. And then I guess we're sitting in Singapore here, so perhaps on the other side, uh, this other side of the world, um, and a very different city, obviously a lot smaller, but also at the heart of something, I guess like London, in that it's at the heart of something quite big, and, and we're here talking about Southeast Asian design especially, um, and Singapore at, at its heart. Do you see this kind of centre of gravity um, I suppose it's, I don't know if it's shifted, but it's certainly decentralized out of Europe. Um, and that's been a decades long process. It's not new, but um, when you're here now, do you do you feel like we've reached some kind of resolution to that? You've seen it over such a long period of time. I'd be curious to know what you, you know, what is your read on that? Yeah, I think there's definitely, there's clearly um, a shift. Uh, decentralizing, I think is a very good way of putting it rather than completely shifting. I think for many years, yeah, people just perceived Europe and possibly Milan, Italy, um, Scandinavia as the center of design, as we know it, contemporary design. Southeast Asia has always been looked on as an interesting developing place, but often not for the creativity side, but more for the manufacturing, interesting manufacturing, great natural resources. That has shifted completely, and it has been for a good time. Now, I've been coming here for 10 years or so, and I could see, particularly Singapore, um, a great thirst for creative knowledge. Um, they need, they've been doing a bit of catch-up, because, as we know, I mean, an economic miracle, one of the extraordinary city-state Singapore is in such a short time. 55 years or so from nothing to this economic powerhouse. But very famously, the founding um, president, minister, said this infamous line of, we have no room for poetry 
you know, we need doctors, we need scientists, we need food on the table, there is no room for poetry, um, which sounds dreadful in a sense, but I have sympathy for him because they had to build the roads first. Now, definitely, you see, second generation, third generation, the roads are built. They are a super economic success. There's plenty of room now. In fact, they need poetry. They're gagging for poetry. Um, so both in the educational system and design, creativity, you know, design is, I think, that perfect um, profession, discipline, that is a good marriage between business and creativity. Um, so for Singapore, totally they focus in on that because that is, it's yes, it's creative, but it's also, they can make sense of it. Um, so I've seen, yeah, education system, absolutely top draw. Young designers, now mature designers, have been coming out over the last 10 years producing outstanding work. Um, and that's not just Singapore, that's Southeast Asia. Again, as your exhibition completely illustrates and champions. It's, um, and I like to see Singapore hosting, having the confidence, which is good, um, to have their neighbours exhibited yeah. with them. So rather than keeping it, well, we're the best, um, that shows great confidence um, that they're happy to champion their neighbouring um, design territories. But what a position they're in now. What a great moment they are in terms of um, with the problems happening in China, as we know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong's loss, you know, which is such a shame. What's happening is, of course, Singapore's gain. Um, but they are on a super trajectory um, of embracing creativity, making up for lost time. Um, but, you know, they got their ship in order. They got the finances right. <laughs> Maybe similar to going back to the advice I was given by Jeremy, my predecessor. Get your finances right first, then start to make waves and start to yeah, do crazy stuff. I think making a magazine is actually a great metaphor for so many different disciplines. I think that this idea of, you know, I mean, you're creating a, a plan, you're talking about pacing and talking about sizing and things being well balanced. You know, yes. you've got to have a strong financial foundation. You've got to have an element of kind of vision. You know, it's like all of these different parts that have to come together. And it's quite a, I get perhaps maybe a dying understanding that as the magazines you know, cease to exist, people kind of don't approach it that way. But yes. it's um, And a magazine, of course, it's, it's a product. Um, yeah. looking at your magazine exactly. it's a beautiful product that's why I think it will never die it's tougher now just because the you know things are, the pie is cut up into so many different pieces now but we need nice things I mean we're human beings we're tactile we respond to tactility we are um, yeah, we're the art, we are the art making animal as uh, Simon Sharma I think it was he said it on his Civilization series we are the art making animal we need to do it. We're the only one that does things for art only. Other animals make beautiful things, but they tend to be a nest or for survival of food. We make things purely for the benefit to uplift our spirits. And I think magazines as a piece of product, as well as a piece of editorial content, very important. I guess it begs the question then, why did you leave media? Again, that, that, that feeling that every 10 years, wallpaper was longer, it was 15 years, and then 30 years, I suppose, in media. I just felt I had to do something different. Um, a wallpaper, definitely, I, we'd done it, you know, at that stage, give someone else a go. Definitely, my team were amazing. Sarah was my creative director, was my rock, my right hand. She deserved a go, you know? It's got to 
and I've done enough, and I'm in danger of repeating myself a little. Um, I'm the least complacent person on the planet, honestly, but even I was beginning to bit deja vu. Um, and I wanted to do what I had studied at art school 30 years ago, which was graphic design and typography. And I got sidetracked for 30 years into the wonderful world of magazines and journalism. Fabulous 30 years, but I thought before I get too old, I need to go back and see what it's like to be a designer, branding, graphic design, typography, mixed with the great knowledge I'd learned over those years, particularly at Wallpaper and the connections and the understanding of both the creative side and the business side of design, in furniture, in fashion, lifestyle, travel, all that, that knowledge and those connections. Um, but I just, want, just wanted to also see what it's like to have your own business rather than be cocooned by um, very nice publishers, which again, I'd been lucky. Sunday Times, Condé Nast, Timing, wonderful you know you you feel you're of course you're independent in what you're doing and you're taking risks but it's not you've got that support and I thought I'd before before I get too old I need to know what it's like to really run my own business and feel that pressure and that exhilaration of really having to wash your own face as it were must be a completely new challenge and you must have so much empathy for all of the other brand owners that you've spoken to over the years and the other designers it must be quite a you're really going full circle with it yeah I feel their pain yeah um, but I kind of always did um, I understood that this is such a, a exhilarating industry to be in but also fraught with pressure and tension of making and distributing and marketing um, so I yeah I have a good grounding in all, in all of that which then makes the transition a, a lot easier um, but yet yeah, being a designer at heart that was the thing I was missing as well um, and the editor-in-chief role at Wallpaper as I say the greatest 10-11 years of my life where it opened every door met the most incredible people but I wasn't making and I my sleeves weren't rolled up and I was missing that you kind of you know you, you conduct and you orchestrate when you're an editor-in-chief um, other people are doing it I miss I really did miss that so it's lovely to be on the shop factory floor again for a metaphor and really be making and designing um, I was a bit rusty um, at first but I have some I've got a lovely team around me who kind of fill in for those rusty gaps um, but I've still got you know it's still there the ideas and I know how things should work and what the one how one should operate and um, so it's been a really really wonderful reintroduction to that world of being a designer again as opposed to as I say, orchestrating, or working, but also working with other designers. That's always been a, a, again, great advice or great experience I had that as a watching art directors, or art editors, that, you know, you get other people. There's always somebody better than you at something, so use the best. So, yeah, choose a photographer to do the, you could do the photography yourself. Might be nice for your ego, but no, come on. There are better people out there, similarly with writers, with typography, with all these different disciplines, working with better people is wonderful experience. It's the great pleasure of creative direction, I think, because it it's is. just this incredibly in indulgent role to an extent where you get to you get to work with the best, and but influence them and have a so you have your hand in it, um, but you know you're working with an expert in whatever that field is. But it's your job to. Uh, 
and nudge them in the particular direction. And I think great photographers and illustrators and designers really respect that role because they need guidance. Um, sometimes I do think, what is our role? When I was a creative director, I spoke to some photographers at says, and a photographer, really established, super successful photographer, and he said, we'd be lost without you guys. <laughs> we'd kind of, you know, we'd be, we'd go down an alleyway somewhere and never come back. They need, and I think that is right with many creatives, they need somebody else to just guide them a little bit. And that's the great skill of a creative director, creative director to um, not let them do their thing. So never, ever um, impact on their potential, but guide them in the way that you need it because you have a specific function to fulfill, whether it's a magazine or an advertisement or a film. Um, but allow the maximum creativity for that person but also guide them in the right direction so they don't get lost and i guess that's it's about making the the end product greater than the sum of its parts it's a job totally. where you get to do that totally yeah again service being a servant to the the big picture rather than thinking it's about me it's a whole team of people and we're all contributing to make the end product the best thing it can be thank you so much thank you very much really appreciate your time pleasure